Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast. That's it. That's it. <laughs> That's all we are. But accurate. it's a podcast. I mean, really, that is all we are. We're, we're, not, that we're is, not like a TV show. That is all we are. We're not a, yeah. I mean, it is an app description. If we're talking about like, not like common a, topics. Not a grocery delivery service. Mm-mm, not yet. Are we expanding? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> sky's the limit, boys. There's so many avenues where we could. So That's many right. open markets. Are you just saying there are lots of businesses we can? I'm make? just saying there's lots yeah. of businesses we can take a moderate, a, so. a, a insignificant podcast in directions in. That wasn't a sense. We are All top right. fifteen in our category. Insignificant. Thank what you is very much. Our top fifteen category? classical literature. education <laughs> oh, in the literature. Are category. we really? Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. Like consistently, we're in the top fifteen. Man, thanks algorithm. Yeah, exactly. It. No, yeah, thank, hey, thank you, hey, listener. Thank you, listener. Yeah, yeah, seriously, that's sure. fun. Thank you for um. I, Wait, who's as of as of right now, we have ninety nine reviews. So if anyone would like to go and be that hundredth review, that would be wonderful. Con- confession don't one star it. i have been I'll, I'll like play our episodes and just set my computer to play them over and over and over no i'm just kidding no, all that matters is downloading it not listening to it oh so, really yeah. oh, there you go <laughs> so you don't even have to listen <laughs> like, to it yeah i'm just wasting my computer yeah, exactly time. that's exactly right anyway so we are a podcast about the classical world classical education which is a education pedagogy sweeping the nation taking the nation by storm um not really is that yeah is some that people true? like it yeah okay, <laughs> there's, a, there's a niche group but um, we like old things. We review. teach uh, with uh, in the Western canon, and we attempt to teach the whole man, uh, the head, the heart, uh, and then with art and beauty and good things, also the appetites, and, and trying to uh, raise up our kids to love that which is good, true, and beautiful. And I see by today's notes of today's podcast that it's on, uh, maybe you're, are you doing a podcast about me? Yeah. About, about me. your hero? Yeah. Is that what this is? It's about heroes? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is very flattering. Yeah. We're just going to sing, is it the Nickelback song? <laughs> we're just going to sing that to you over and over again, Graham. The Enrique Iglesias? Is that, is that who it is? That, that, that song. That's a great song. Yeah. Was that like Spider-Man 2? Like the, like the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man? I don't know. It was one I don't of those. know if Enrique Iglesias was It feels like there. the right mm. like cultural moment, yeah, though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It'll kind of go together. Or you're doing this podcast on sandwiches. Yeah, it's actually, yeah, I'm going to talk about euros and I'm going to talk about lamb and... What other sandwiches are there? What other classical sandwiches are there? Mm, that's a great question. Okay. Mm. Is it though? I, it's not. Okay. I, I can't think of a classical sandwich. Was there Was there a moment in like a book where... You tell me. In your... In shawarmas. It, those are really old. But I know, but can you think of a moment in a book that was... You know, there are sandwich, sandwiches are a really big thing in the importance of being earnest. Yes. Okay. There you go. He eats the sandwiches. Does that count as classical? Uh, we get that question It's over 100 years. Is that what makes... Okay, good. That's our cutoff. Okay, so today we are talking about heroes. We're So what we're talking about is what Graham introed with, that a defining thing of, of classical education... I'm going to say this and then maybe disagree with myself later. A defining piece of classical education is that... So it's what makes a great podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is that it... Uh, the, the goal of classical education is the conveyance, the teaching of both wisdom and virtue. So any school is teaching what generally we would call wisdom, the knowledge that comes before. So uh, any, no, no matter where you are in a biology class, they are teaching you like the, the wisdom, the things learned in biology. You're going to learn that anywhere. But what classical education would also add to that is not only the teaching of the subjects themselves, but virtue, uh, moral character, how to live in the world, how to be a good man or woman. So that would be a difference between classical and modern education. Yep. So anyone disagree with those? Okay, cool. No, makes okay. sense. Now, how you do that Great. is... So, well, I think modern education probably does give you a moral education, yeah, but sure. it's perhaps an accidental one or one that is watered down, right? Because you have That's to appeal to a large group. That's a good point. You Oh, the size is... 
I don't usually think of the size as being the reason for that, but that's interesting. So the, yeah, it's, it's a logical principle, right? The more people in a group, the less they have in common. So classical so, schools need to be small to... Well, they, they naturally self-select to a smaller, a smaller class, uh, right? Typically they're private, which means that it's, it's a different group there. And then yeah. people that want a certain education for their kids, right? It, it self-selects into a smaller group that has more in common. Yeah, we should talk about, th- this is a total tangent and unrelated, um, um, Oh, what is the guy's name? The guy who did Great Books of the Western World, Mortimer Adler. His so first he did Great Books of the Western World, which is with Encyclopedia Britannica, and then his project following up was this thing called the Padilla Project. If anyone's ever heard of that, his goal is to take classical education and instill that in public schools. So his goal was for classical education to be a part of public education, but not the Christian part of it, obviously, because it's public yeah. school. So. Now, listener, paideia means, paideia is a Greek word that kind of encapsulates this idea of the training up of the whole man, not just the wisdom or not just the understanding of the knowledge of subjects, but also the sort of the moral formation. Yeah. Um, and so... And that's why he called it paideia program. So mm-hmm. that, that's where the word comes from there. Anyway. There's like a scene in the Odyssey where Telemachus, they talk about like Telemachus lacks paideia or something like that. I don't that. think they, I'm not sure the, the actual word comes up much, or right. at least, that, I mean, it doesn't come up in the translation, so, mm-hmm. but that that is what... Both men are kind of going through during the whole tale. And then Paul's Greek, uh, uh, one of his letters when he's talking about being, I think it's like being brought up in the Lord. Um, the, 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 the word is actually paideia, the right. paideia of the Lord. So yeah. being brought up in, being trained in the head and the heart, sort of the, the moral wisdom virtue. Um, yeah. Okay. So today's episode is just a brief reflection on how that is done or ways in which that can be done. So a thing that's been said on this podcast before uh, mostly by Graham, but I'm sure everyone has said it, of the teacher being the curriculum. Graham, when you say the teacher is the curriculum, what do you mean by that? So, yeah, so we back up a couple of steps. Um, so the, the way that the teacher goes about teaching or the way that the teacher goes about understanding a subject is an incredibly important and formative and powerful thing. Um, so... Uh, and then the students ultimately mimic the way that their teachers go about subjects and go about understanding things. So if um, so, a teacher needs to show that they. Um, so, for example, I'm, I'm shoot. I'm trying to think of a, of a really good example. Um, if the teacher has everything prepared and they have all the answers to all of the questions, and then has a lesson plan. And in their mind is never is not going to deviate from that lesson plan because we need to get from point A to point B in this lesson because I need to teach you about um, uh, Alexander the Great and his various in his like five great victories. So today that's what we're doing in in, in class. And uh, if I have all the facts set up for Alexander the Great and his five great victories or whatever, um, and I am just a dispensing information and knowledge and then presenting to the students, and then it's, all right, kids, you need to you need to memorize this just like the way that I've memorized this. Clearly, I'm standing up here, and I'm spouting all these things, and maybe I'm looking at my notes, or maybe I'm not. And then the, the student's expectation is, okay, I need to be like that. I need to be able to absorb this and be able to speak ad hoc or extemporaneously on all of these things about Alexander the Great. And if some kid asks a question about, why did Alexander the Great do this instead of that? And the teacher says, that's an interesting question. Unfortunately, we just don't have any time to talk about this. Uh, we just really need to to do this thing and finish out why Alexander the Great divided his kingdoms to his sons or whatever. Like that, you've communicated a couple of things. You've taught the kid about Alexander the Great, but you've also communicated that, like, we, you know, 
we can't stop for progress. Like we got to keep moving forward. And these sorts of questions are not, are not important or, um, are not going to be, yeah, we're not going to sit and debate these things. Um, and if the student never sees the teacher work out from first principles, like a conclusion from something, if the teacher honestly doesn't know something, um, and then the student never really learns that. So when I mean, what I say when I what I mean when I say the teacher is a curriculum is that the students are observing and absorbing the way the teacher interacts with the big things of human existence, and that's true in a math class. That's true in a history class. That's true in an English class. We're talking about uh, these concepts, and if the teacher never at any point says like, "Oh my goodness, I find this super convicting," or um, or has any sort of like moment where the teacher lets in the fact that they too are humans who feel things, then the student is always, is never going to sort of know how to deal with these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think of a real, of a good example. Um, I would, yeah, anyway. So maybe, so maybe this might work in getting at an example. The idea you're talking about has been talked about before by a guy we've talked about on the podcast. Uh, Josh Gibbs has this wonderful article called the cruciform lectern. Mm -hmm. And his argument is what Graham is saying that if you're in an English class and you're reading a book and it is insufficient for you to say, yeah, when I first read this book 10 years ago, it really impacted me. What we as what we need to be able to do is get in front of the students and say, this is how I'm impacted now. Mm -hmm. All of us teach um, a leadership class, which has pieces of worldview and theology tied in with that. It is not sufficient for us to say, well, yeah, like I got all this stuff right years ago and now I'm good. It's wow. When I'm reading this now, I'm convicted of things that I'm doing wrongly. And here's what I've had to turn around in my life. We have to model that for the students or else they won't learn it. Yeah. For example, this year uh, in our 12th grade English class, we have three sections about, you know, 12 to 15, 12 kids. And every once in a while we get together into a big where we put all the sections together. And so we do big group activities. And one of them was, I, I, I gave a small mini lecture on crime and punishment. We had just finished reading crime and punishment. And, um, and it was on things that had struck me or that had convicted me in reading crime and punishment this year. That was sort of the, the, the hook. Uh, that was the exordium of the lecture was, um, and, uh, and one of them, you know, I don't need to get into details. One of them was just about the character of um, Lucin, who's the big, like, sort of jerk bag who uh, uh, is rich and wants to marry the, like, poor girl so he can, like, save her. And everyone's like, oh, what a great guy. And he's just, like, on the surface, he uh, talks about, I don't know, like, seems to be interested in things. But below the surface, he's just, like, pride prideful and arrogant. And one of my points to this kids as I was reading it was just like how easy it is to slip into that into that mentality and how easy it is to be that kind of person and to because he he really looks at the main character Raskolnikov and sees a no good um loser who who is like all wound up in his own philosophy which is true Raskolnikov, I was gonna say he's not that far off he's not Raskolnikov that far off, is kind but, I mean add murderer to that and, and add murderer, Raskolnikov. but dismisses him and like sees him as irredeemable garbage mm -hmm. and an annoyance that he's that uh, and, and thinks that his opinion on his sister's future happiness has no bearing because of his status in life as like you know the sort of dropout stoner murderer mm -hmm. he's not a stoner but you know what I mean that kind of uh, that kind of mentality and um, and I just sort of this year found that convicting that it was like, it's so easy to, to write people off that you think are, are, I don't know, for whatever reason, like less intellectually developed or write people off who seem to be, you know, uh, don't have their life together. And you think, well, they must not be very virtuous people. Meanwhile, Raskolnikov by the end of the book is like on his way to 
to sainthood. I mean, very, very early steps. <laughs> but Dostoevsky makes it clear that he is on the path to being a good man. And so I just, I just personally, again, this, this year found that convicting and communicated that to the students. And my guess is that that's going to be something that a teacher sort of standing up and yeah. saying, like, I'm a human being who feels this way right. is going to be more um, memorable sure. yeah. or more impactful than, than like, their quiz on chapter 16 or whatever. Right. So, so just this, the first point that we're looking at, okay, so some piece of that more... But quizzes on chapter 16 are very important. You still need to do them because if you don't, then they never read. Yeah. I thought that was unspoken. (laughs) Naturally. Obvious. That's the most important of the chapters. So, (laughs) actually... No, Thomas, not just chapter 16. No, the only one. Yeah, no, no, only (laughs) chapter 16. So... Th- this wasn't a point I was planning on making, but you're drawing this out, which is important. Okay, so you can't only do moral education. You do also need to teach things. And that's what, like, that's the joke we're making about. You also need to do the reading. Mm-hmm. You can't just get the moral lesson that you've cheated the process if you've done that. So that, but some pieces, or they don't know how to do it themselves. Yes, like so, yeah. me coming up to the front and just sort of talking about how I feel about something. I can't just do that every year right. because then the students by the end of the year, all they're going to say is like, wow, Mr. Dawson really That's likes books yeah, exactly. and Mr. Yeah. Dawson feels so much, <laughs> but if they don't, if they're not taught how to do that themselves, right. then, then, then they they're not, they, they, they won't be able to be, to grow after they leave you. Yeah. Right. Because at some point they'll have to do this for themselves. Correct. So, and so that, so you must teach things and morals. So that's a point not planning or whatever. That's a thing. But the, the main point we're making here is that some piece of moral education is through seeing someone else do it. You, uh, see that someone actually believes the things that they are saying and follows them. And that makes a person want to be like that. Mm-hmm. That's the only point I'm making. So teachers can do that, but it's not only teachers who do that. So if it's called classical education, then much of what we do or point to are the classics. So like the, the history, the history of written work primarily just cause that lasts that comes before us is another source of example is another source of, I mean, hero is the word that I'm going for, but, um, yeah, another source of examples. So, um, let's take that line of thought. Cause this might, we'll see if this gets fun. Okay. So AJ, you start, well, do you start with the Iliad? What's the very first thing you read? Gilgamesh. Nah, no, who cares about Gilgamesh? Start at the beginning. So, uh, let's talk Iliad cause I know it better than Gilgamesh, but only Sounds fine. slightly. <laughs> who is the hero of the Iliad? Achilles? Yeah, isn't that, I love that. Anyway, I think the real hero of the Iliad is probably Hector. Yeah. Right? Uh, later in Rome, they would they would be more excited to claim descendancy from the Trojans mm-hmm. and from Hector specifically rather than Achilles. Achilles is sort of an angry death monger mm-hmm. and Hector is like a good family man who wants to protect his his home. Yeah. So, but co- being able to being able to come to that conclusion is is part of the point. Oh, that's good. Right? Like you go into it, and the story is about Achilles and his rage, and Achilles is just awesome at everything, um, but he's so – such a jerk. I like when he when he gets mad at a river. Um, uh-huh. No, but, he kills the, – the river gets mad at him. Oh, that's first. right. The river gets mad at him. He kills so many people, it clogs up the river, and the river is like, what <laughs> on, is man. your program? And then they fight together, and nothing happens. Um, but then to be able to come to the end of that and realize, like, oh – Hector dead is. disgraced Hector is is, is the way the, to to live yeah. or is is the hero yeah. and to sort of parse out that sort of tragedy of it yeah. but also Achilles is going to die too right. of it uh is, is is like the important part of of developing virtue in that sure so but let's follow with Hector mm-hmm. so Hector so what about him makes him the hero what what is his personality what are 
Like, what are the things that Hector does that makes you end the story and say he's the good guy? Oh, so many. He, he gets flirted with by kid. Helen and then turns her down. Mm-hmm. And not very many men actually turn Helen down. Mm-hmm. And he has a wife that is insanely in love with him and wants him to stay. And he's, he's got a kid. He's that tender he's kind to his to. child. He's, he's tender to his child. His child sees him in his armor and starts crying and he takes well, it off. One of the best ways is that he's he's contrasted with his brother Paris, who mm-hmm. is good at fighting, but incredibly vain and has zero courage. And so Hector will yell at him for all of the things that he should be doing and, and isn't doing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's probably not a good way to get the character of a person through how they yell at another person, but Hector does live all this out. And when he makes a mistake, he owns up to it. And at the end of the book, he won't run back into the castle or into the city because he doesn't want to be ashamed in front of his friends. And th- so there are a few, I don't know, kind of spots where you say, well, Hector, maybe that wasn't the best choice, but he is humble. He works hard. He fights when he needs to fight. He protects his family. He isn't he, doing this for self-glory. He's fighting. Yeah, he's fighting part. for at least more honorable reasons, protecting family, even though families, even though his family members are doofuses. Um, but he still shows loyalty. But he still shows loyalty right. to them and, and does it honorably. And uh, which is why it's such a, it's so painful when Achilles like drags him around the castle or drags him around Troy 11 times or whatever it is. Yeah. Which is like, it, it's intentionally supposed to be like a mm-hmm. painful scene. Okay. So then, so everyone who reads the Iliad should then strive to be like Hector. Or Ajax or there are Di- a few, there are a few oh, good but if, characters. Diomedes, geez. But, oh, yeah, Diomedes for sure. But uh, so if Hector's the main guy, shouldn't everyone be like him? Like why, why do we need the other? So there are other characters in the story. Like why do they matter if we have Hector? Well, the reason, the reason is because no character in the Iliad is perfect. The person who probably comes closest is Diomedes, in all honesty, because Hector has a few missteps, mm-hmm. right? He does, he does push, <clears throat> push too far and risk his troops and it ends up messing them up. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, he stays outside the city for his own, because he's afraid of his own shame. Mm-hmm. And he could have stayed and just let Achilles, you know, just run around the city and be mad at the walls and that, that would be fine. And then they could fight another day, mm-hmm. but he doesn't because he's afraid he'll get made fun of. And while that, that may be a good thing, it may also have been the thing that doomed Troy to, to death. Mm-hmm. And for Ajax, he's great. He works hard. He's a hard worker, but he's just not that bright is kind of how you walk away with Ajax. <laughs> and Diomedes maybe borders are on impious, but for the most part, Diomedes has a clear head in council. He works really hard. He's incredibly glorious. We just don't see that much of him. That's the thing. You don't see much of him, so you don't get enough of a full picture to to know if he's if he's virtuous in every circumstance. And from what I know, he returns home to a wife that has abandoned him. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know that he was maybe the greatest husband. So you don't really know that much about Diomedes. So then is the right way to read the Iliad to get to the end and say, okay, so I should take the best of all of these different characters and like, that's the thing I'm aiming at. The, the goal is to have the story, know the story, see all the characters, know their motivations, know the contexts, know their histories, and then judge their decisions okay. with the, was this a good idea? Was this a bad idea? Because, um, uh, and by judging your, um, your separate, you know, your you know, judgment is sort of is pulling two things apart or is, is, um, doesn't it mean to cut? It means that? to, yeah, it yeah. means to cut. So when you're judging someone's actions, you are judging their actions based on some kind of perceived standard that you have mm-hmm. of, a, of the better outcome. Um, the way students, are, uh, just as an aside, students are bad at this because 
uh, and I think maybe just humans are bad at this because we also don't naturally take into account like probability. So students will say things like, well, the best outcome would be if just like someone threw a rock and hit Achilles and he's dead and the war's done. It's like, okay, fine. That, but like probability, like right. well, what, what is the probability of this thing happening in, in, in the facts on the ground? Um, so that's usually not a very good question to ask students is like, what is the best outcome that could happen? Because they'll just give you the most improbable best outcome. Be like, well, meteor falls on the Greek army. Yeah, but I, I can't think that we just, you can't just look for a hero. I think while there is a positive lesson there are things there are admirable traits in the characters part of the reason we read it is for the negative traits that we want to avoid Mm -hmm. okay so these characters give us examples of things to avoid um well this kind of goes back to a long ago podcast where we talked about the ideal type mm -hmm. that there's this idea or at least the, the the theory of the ideal type goes that human beings have the sense of what happiness and goodness is and um, and happiness and goodness in a human life is achieved by conforming to the ideal type by being, uh, by being this, the hero. Yep. And so when you have a character like Hector and you say, okay, um, he lived a good life, he was a good man, and then you start to assess and, and look at, his, uh, at, at what he did, and you're holding him up to a standard of what you think would be sort of happy and good um, by sort of wrestling with that and having a relationship with Hector that goes on and on and on many times that you read the story. When you're young, you're probably like, Hector's dumb because he's dead. Uh, And Achilles is alive, so I want to be like Achilles. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's often what, you know, well, if he's so smart, how how come he's dead at the end of the book? Yeah. It's like, okay. But then having that relationship with... Well, they're all all dead now. They're all dead now. And that's that's the point. And 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 that's the thing. It's like, they're all dead now, so how would you have rather lived? Um, and as you sort of read this over and over, and then as you read it when you're older and you have a family and you think about like, you know, would you sacrifice yourself for your, your stupid brother who makes dumb mistakes? Would you like risk your kid growing up without a father? You know, like all these sorts of things. And you look back and you think back on these things and by holding these up as these, as these models and archetypes and asking, was this wise? Was this foolish? Is this fair? Is this unfair? You're kind of chiseling away at, at. And, and, yeah, and if you actually let it work itself on you and be honest about yourself on this, yeah. then you, that's how virtue is formed, at least through literature and stories. Yeah. Let me, tr- let me try it a different yeah. angle because you're getting closer to the, the idea I'm playing around with here. Okay, so what is, the, what is the role of Diomedes and Ajax? What do they do in the army? The or what is their Ajax title? Smash. Or what is their Ajax Smash? So we or, can't think of that army like a regular army. They're they are under they're, they're heroes and they are under their own sort of vows that they gave mm-hmm. to be there. Right? They vowed to protect a certain marriage, and the marriage has been sundered. Mm-hmm. And so they are there to fulfill their own vows. It's not like we have one general mm-hmm. and then underlings. Man, so, imagine if we had wars over like, like the that. sanctity of a marriage. Yeah. Mm. So they're... Wouldn't it be cool to have like the moral cause? Yeah. So they may be kings in their own right. Odysseus was a king in his own right. I forget if Ajax was, but they all, they all came partially because of those vows and partially because it was an opportunity for glory and for loot. Yeah. And most of them did not want to be there. Yes, that very much that maybe more the, the way of taking it is. So from the story we see, we get to see more of Hector, like with his city Mm -hmm. than we do of Ajax or Diomedes in their cities. Yes. Is that, Mm -hmm. that's a fair way, a fair way of putting it. Okay. Would yeah maybe because we see Hector in his regular life and then a a grand tragedy befalling mm-hmm. the peaceful Ilium yep. peaceful Troy uh, maybe that's also why Hector 
well, is is the easy is the easier go to because here is a man who has what he wants and is not looking for trouble and is not looking for war. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he his home and way of life is under attack mm-hmm. from a cause that is righteous, right. but is also righteous and then also opportunistic. Because mm-hmm. yeah, sure, the sanctity of the marriage is all well and good, but Agamemnon wants to take Agamemnon wants wants gold, right, uh, and glory. So, um, how does the man deal with this kind of tragedy that befalls him? I think is a lot easier. Um, a lot easier to wrap your head around than, um, uh, or is a lot easier to put yourself in that place than in a- Ajax or yes. Diomedes. If you look and you read Ajax, where Ajax at the end of the war is all like PTSD'd out and he starts slaughtering sheep and wants the armor. What's that play where Ajax wants? There's, there's armor the, of Achilles, where they're arguing for it. Where they're arguing for the armor of Achilles. It, there's, a, there's a whole play. It's called The Judgment of Arms and it's in Ovid. It's not a play. Oh, so it's, right. so it's yeah, in it's Ovid. So there's, you know, then then you then maybe that one you can put yourself in Ajax's shoes. Yeah. And I'm saying more, let's let's say we swapped Hector and Ajax in the story. So Ajax is uh, over Troy, and we see more of his life. And Hector's job is to sma- is to destroy things like Ajax's job is in the Iliad. Would Hector still be as good? A d- would we still hit, say he's the hero? Nah. And, and part of it is we don't see his life, but part of it is that he he loses in combat. Uh, in the Iliad, like Ajax is good at war and he destroys lots of things. Therefore we're like, Ajax is cool. And Hector had Hector is a moral character, but then ultimately loses his combat with Achilles. That's, mm-hmm. that's the point that you all he also about. loses his combat with Ajax yeah. for the record. No, that's good. So just all to say like, so there are things Hector is good at and there are things Hector is bad at, but the position he's in plays to the strengths that he has mm-hmm. the, to the point that we would say that we would say there's an argument a strong argument for him being the hero of the Iliad. Mm-hmm. What am I saying? Why am I belaboring this point? I think it is help. You all are not falling for the traps that I want you to fall for. So I think there's a way of reading. Because we're classically educated. Because, yeah, because you all are. <laughs> I wasn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you, boys, but I, I wasn't. Not. No, I just, I've read a few books. So, uh, so I think an oversimplistic way would be to read the Iliad and say, okay, Hector's the hero. Therefore, everyone should want to be like Hector. Mm-hmm. I think there's an, I think it matters the, the, the function that Hector is in and that we see him in there are moral attributes we should we can take from him but not everyone is going to be like Hector not everyone is going to lead the Trojan uh, forces not everyone is going um, to be he's not king because Priam is king mm-hmm. what is his I guess he's the prince. prince I mean he's he's yeah his father is the king of Troy so I guess that makes him the prince of Troy with 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 Paris. Yes, and not all of us will be in positions of being princes. Mm-hmm. So there are moral characteristics we should take from him, but there are certain personality or temperament, temperament characteristics that I think aren't suited to everyone. Mm-hmm. Some of us are just going to be, in metaphor of the Iliad, the um, the people in the army. Like we're just going to be the the large. Like not all of us are in the positions of like leadership to then be like. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, I think everything can be can be scaled up or scaled down to an individual life. Like, isn't yes. every man in some way a king of his own castle? Like a king of his own yes. of his own realm? Nah, I rent. Okay. <laughs> <Problem> <laughs> so yes, there. Maybe you're complicating it in the helpful way of saying that that's what I do. we ought. I'm an English Hector, teacher. So. We, thank you. We ought be Hectors in certain places, but we ought be Ajaxes in others. Mm-hmm. That, in that, our examples won't necessarily be. We, we won't necessarily only get one example from the stories we read. Uh, yes, I think it's incredibly kind of like 
shallow or naive to say this person is my idol and my hero and then I'm going to try to craft everything about my life around this person. So at 24, this he went off and he went on like a trip of Europe to discover himself. So I'm going to go do that mm-hmm. or, or whatever it is. That's like ends with those people who spend like thousands and thousands of dollars to get plastic surgery to like look sure. like they're, they're Hollywood, they're, yeah. they're Hollywood hero. And yeah. That's just creepy. Um, but then also this, but this ties back with our, our first part about th- with teachers that mm-hmm. you're not, whoever your hero is, your life is not going to look exactly like theirs does. And also they, probably aren't your hero in like every aspect. Like it's okay to have, this is my hero in work life. This is my hero at my church. This is my, like, I think so. I don't know. Beyonce seems to have a lot going on. <laughs> going for her. Yeah. So that's, yep. That's okay. True. So we actually found the perfect model. I, I dig it. Oh, um, can I also complicate I, You all may not appreciate this. I don't know. Uh, if we're using the story of the Iliad, We've so far brought up male heroes because we three of us are male. We have not brought up female heroes, mm-hmm. um, of which is Queen Arete. Is she big enough a deal? No. Okay. Probably not. Who would we? We wouldn't say Helen is Helen certainly Penelope, not. but she's not in the Iliad. Yeah. Yeah. So is Hecuba, we, we is don't there? we don't really get any in the Iliad. Mm-hmm. At least no good ones. We yeah. have Hecuba and we have Andromache, but both of them play such small roles. Well, that Cassandra I call them. is she in there? No. Uh, Who's the one that like no one believes? Cassandra. Cassandra. Yeah, yeah she's you're in right. The plays afterward. Poor thing. Yeah, she's in. She's in future plays. Mm-hmm. She's in the Oristaya. Yeah. And um um the w- the sacrifice, and then she actually survives. I thought she Iphigenia. Yeah, yeah. Because well, well she may oh, survive. Oh, oh, oh. There, there are there's an opera. Right? There's yeah. like yeah, there's all these stories that she survives. But there are there anyway. are other ancient Greek women who are supposed to be paragons. You have the story of Camilla. I, is the one that specifically comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um. Who's, who's really impressive. For for our listeners, Camilla was the daughter of a tyrant, and as the tyrant was one, running away from the town because the town was chasing him out because he was a tyrant, yeah. which makes sense. <laughs> makes a lot of sense. He came to a river while carrying his young young daughter, and she she was a baby at this point, and he, so he prayed to Diana, Diana, please let her live, because he had to cross the river or else they both die. So he strapped her to a spear and then hucked her over the river with the prayer that if she lived, she would be dedicated to Diana. It worked, so she became a huntress and then lived as an Amazon warrior princess and eventually came to fight in favor of the Latins against the Trojans who were trying to take over the Latin area and eventually found Rome. This is Mm -hmm. in the Aeneid. And she was such a great fighter that everyone was terrified of her. And there's one guy that challenges her to a a one-on-one duel. She's chasing him on a horse and he's like, wait, 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 stop. Let's mm-hmm. do this right. Mm-hmm. So they both get off the horse and they start putting on armor for a one-on-one fight. And he's like, nah, just kidding. <laughs> Hops on his horse and then takes off. Okay. He's, he was hoping to just slow her down, right. get her armor on and then get her off the horse. And she doesn't get back on the horse. What she does do is chase him down on foot as the horse runs away, pull him off and then stab him. Eventually she does die, but the gods like her so much that they kill the archer for it. Wow. So, so there's a good one for you. So, and, yeah. and uh, oh, there's another one. Penelope. Okay. So there's Camilla and then there's Penthesilea. Penthesilea was a warrior princess that Achilles fought near the end of the war. And after, even after slaying her, she was so beautiful that he fell in love with her. Mm. And so we, we have some pretty awesome warrior women. They're just few and far between. Yes. I'm, this is a, this is a petty point. I'm only saying that. So we start with, if we start with the Iliad, we would say there aren't like a ton of examples in there. And of course there are stories other than the Iliad, but just to say, uh, I just want to acknowledge that like, that's what we've talked about for most of this time so far. And so um, there are insufficiencies in just looking to like one single hero. Again, 
Beyonce. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sold on this one. I, I need to think about this some more. Broke the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, okay. This seems legitimate. Um, That's true. Okay, so... Lemonade was a triumph. <laughs> just kidding. So, where are we right now? So, um, moral education must be modeled in some way and then is... It's just like seen. It is absorbed by people. It's not necessarily taught explicitly. We don't only have the examples of people who are like with us physically, which would be a teacher, which is the first part. We also have stories that come before us. So we can look to the stories to find other heroes, but I'm just trying to expand it and say there may be more heroes than just one per story or even the one Hector. Like there are still things to learn from Achilles. I'd say in a, in a, in a good story, there, there are lots of, well, there are either are lots or there are very few, mm. right? A, a well-written story is going to show, I, I talk with my ninth graders about this. If it just has one hero that has no flaws and is good all the time, mm. it is probably some sort of commercial fiction because that's not what we find in real life most yep. often, yep. right? People have flaws. Mm-hmm. And so your main character is going to have some flaws in Crime and Punishment. He has many. Mm-hmm. There are very few characters in that book that have no flaws. Mm-hmm. Razumikin is a little bit love hungry we have dunya who is maybe a little bit prideful and, and cross we poor have, free makes questionable police decisions yeah he makes questionable police decisions and everyone has their own issue but mm. you, they're they're more honest characters and so mm-hmm. typically with good fiction you're gonna have you're gonna have a better representation of real human life which means flaws, there are flaws and, then, in and then the mechanism is true also when you're studying history mm. um so this is why and also this is just a little aside this is why most classical pedagogy of history is very much people-based and the criticism of classical history is that we take a great man approach to history and we ignore the movements. social movements or we ignore like the lives of ordinary people or, or these kinds of things there's probably a little bit of fairness to that criticism but the reality why we take history and and say that it is the why we do it as a study of 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 people so usually specific individuals mm-hmm. so instead of studying 50 years in history you study the reign of henry the third or mm-hmm. whatever it is and by then you can um in order to understand henry the third's context then you got then you got to understand all the social things and all mm-hmm. the people and, and that kind of stuff but then you can ask yourselves those same questions like did he make the right call did he not make the right call what was virtuous about his, his life what was repugnant um um you know did, was this given all of the, the the context and the situation that he found himself in he, he's just sort of plopped into this position he's born into this context of life does he make the right go of it or does he not make the right go of it? Because it's the same with us. Like yep. Thomas, you were you had no say in being born in, I don't know, one of those Maybe Southern places. Uh, uh, in Georgia. In Georgia. I had no say in being born in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. Hannenberg had no say in being born in Spokane. Like the cards were dealt. We don't right. get any say in. Right. Do we play them virtuously? Do we, do, can you, um, do we make the right calls, we make the wrong calls. Like this is what we're doing when we're studying history. And so then you can apply that to your life. Um, So that's, that's why history for the classical education ends up being more of this analysis of people Mm -hmm. versus like, let's learn about the, the, you know, the five stages of Republicanism in England. Mm -hmm. I mean, you do need to know that, but that only comes alive when you know that, and then you can apply it to Oliver Cromwell or whatever. So this actually leads us into our kind of next level on this discussion. Okay. So let's say I took any of those people that we just mentioned, anyone that we just listed. So Hector or Diomedes or Ajax or that super cool hunter who was dedicated to Diana. What was her name? Camilla? 
Camilla, if we take any, let's, let's take, say we take any of those traits or characteristics and we just straight up copy paste them to today. We say, here's, here's everything Hector did in the Iliad copy paste. I'm going to do that in 2019 Austin. Is that person going to be a successful human being? I feel like in Austin, Camilla might've been okay. <laughs> Great. So Camilla <laughs> would live in the forest and would subsist and like, would be okay. <laughs> okay. Would we, if one of our, uh, ninth grade or 10th grade students came to us and was like, you know what, you know who I want to be? I want to be Camilla. I'm going to go live in the 97 acres of Veritas Academy and hunt and that buy. I have literally had students tell me this. Like, this is what they want. And if they disappeared the next day, <laughs> would you be like, oh, good for you? No, like, okay. no. But it's, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah they, so you need to contextualize it, right? This is the, You need to contextualize great. it to your time as well. So this is the only, great. So that's the next point to make of that there are um, um, examples that we can look to we does someone want to quote the C.S. Lewis line because we quote it almost every time about blind spots. Someone want to say that? Oh, just about uh, that every every age has its own mistakes, mm-hmm. and the the reason we read old books is because we now are inoculated to those mistakes, mm-hmm. but we aren't inoculated to our own, and True. they were. Yeah. So getting perspectives outside your own time may help you see the the own flaws in yours. Totally. But then also, were we just to straight up copy and paste? Here are the traits from two thousand years ago. We're going to do those today there would be blind spots in their culture that would not work in our culture today. That, that that's the only point I'm making here. We cannot yes, directly sure. copy and paste. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there must be contextualization to where we are today. So this reminds me of a, um, uh, of something that I think about a lot when I think about taking old things and then applying it to your own life. C.S. Lewis in his, I guess his autobiography, I guess it's in surprised by joy. He mentions his time in world war one and he mentioned, so world war one, you know, Terrible war, trenches, dehumanizing, you know, uh, uh, with the, the machines and, and um, the artillery going barrage and people going mad and just living in muck and living in filth and just sort of sleeping in dirt and rats and all that kind of stuff. The terribleness of World War One. There's this one point where Lewis is talking about his time in World War One, and he says something like it was just a line where he says something like this is this is war. This is what the Iliad talked about. Um, this is what, yeah, this is what, what Paris and Hector talked about, or this is what Iliad was all about. And in, when I remember reading that for the first time as a young man, in my mind, I was like, oh, man, there's nothing, com- like, World War One versus the Iliad is completely mm-hmm. different. Yeah. There's nothing alike. Like, this is a war of machines and gas and, and, and artillery and, and men crawling in a, in a hole, and that's a war of glory and swords and, and you know, romantic charges. But... Maybe not. Right. I mean, it's also still a war with fighting and scared men and, and like sleeping on the beach and um, lice and lice and arrows and and screams and, and blood. And so it just, you know, for Lewis, a classically educated person, after experiencing war himself, probably read the Iliad totally differently, differently right. but also the Iliad helped him frame the war experience that he had when he was there. Uh, one one area, and yeah, so that, I just find that interesting. Another area that I find interesting with with that is that Tolkien and Lewis both fought in World War One, but they never experienced the same level of like despair mm-hmm. and lost generation and PTSD and all of those sorts of things that a lot of their contemporaries did. And so maybe that was just the type of action that they saw, or maybe there was something about either their faith or Christianity that helped them through that, or or um, or the fact that they were able to contextualize war with all of the wars, maybe I don't know. I haven't really worked through that answer of why uh, of why were were some able to come through these things and and have a 
perspective on it that they could live with. And others came through these things and did not have, and had a perspective on it that they could not live with. I don't know what that answer is, but um, there was an interesting, I haven't listened to much of it. There was an interesting podcast put on by, I think it was St. John's, which is a classical school, classical college in Annapolis, Maryland, but they in Annapolis are also at the Naval Academy or by the Naval Academy. And they had a podcast where they were talking about war with soldiers, with people who had fought, who were with current soldiers. Mm -hmm. So there was a really interesting podcast where they were talking about the armor of Achilles with a combat veteran and thinking about ancient Greek uh, war and modern war and um, uh, Ajax not really having a place in this world after the war and soldiers also experiencing that, that after the war, how can they live just a regular barbecue backyard life? Um, and and just sort of using the ancient text to sort of help contextualize this. It was very fascinating. I can't remember what it was called, but um, it was a um, one of our competing podcasts, I guess. Just are all podcasts yeah. our competitor when you think <laughs> of it that way? I guess it's also kind of classical, so maybe it is a competitor. Anyway, hope you're listening. Hi. Okay, so this is good. So one way of applying those old models of uh, action, personality, whatever, is what you're saying of this direct connection of this is what the Iliad says. This is what I'm experiencing right now and connecting the dots as possible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And letting those Greek texts speak to our current moment. Yes. Okay. And another way. So that's one way of taking it. Uh, It won't work all the time is all I'm trying to say with Mm -hmm. that of like a thriving life in Austin in 2019 will not look the same as a thriving life in the Trojan war 3000 years ago or whatever it is. Like there are significant differences between the two of them. And so another way of using ancient Greek text is that they they kicked off or were a part of a grander conversation that then leads us to our current moment today. So take all, and this is the direction of great books, that you are looking at the conversation over time, that great authors are reading great authors before them, and they're in some type of conversation from then until now. So that's the other way to take it, of to look at the development from the Iliad to now. How mm-hmm. has the view of war changed from that many thousand years ago to today? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what then gets us to kind of our final area, unless someone has a, okay. Um, I was going to, I'm skipping over a section. So I made the brief point of like, if you look at one particular historical moment, you'll miss out on certain heroes that might speak to other types of people other than like war making dudes. So I was going to talk about Adam and Eve and paradise lost. Cause I know you've brought that up before, but I'm skipping over that. Okay. So even if we were to only, if we were to say, here's a male example and here's a female example, that still might not be. Sufficient. People would still make the argument that, like, that's only a particular cultural moment. Yeah. This may, I don't, it may be worth putting in here. I've definitely had conversations with people who say, why read all these old texts when you have the Bible? Like, when you have Christ, and Christ is the model of, of one's life, why not just read that over and over and over again? Why even bother going back and reading about fallen Achilles and broken Hector and all these sorts of things? Why... Why bother doing that when you have, when you have the gospel? Can I attempt an answer at that? Please. Through, okay. This will, this ties in beautifully with. Cause I don't, I, I, I think I like squirted out an, an unhelpful or a, <laughs> uh, a unsatisfying answer when I, last time I had that conversation. Um, okay. So this is from Alistair McIntyre's after virtue, which is great. Everyone should read it. Okay. So this is chapter two, the nature of moral disagreement today and the claims of emotivism. It is a great chapter. Okay. Gentlemen, I can read you a section on war or on justice, and either one is fine. Which one do you, which one do you want to hear? You'll Does get the two, war one include swords? 
Sure. Yes. We've kind of been talking about war. Okay. Why don't we use the war one? Okay. So he, I'll just, this will be lots of reading. I apologize, but I don't because his words are oh, smarter than Oh, don't apologize for Al- Alistair McIntyre. I mean, <laughs> I mean. And I will not apologize yeah. for reading. I mean, the he doesn't for apologize minutes. for himself, so. <laughs> I won't read for 40 minutes, I promise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, there seems to be no rational way of securing moral argument in our culture. Consider, so he has three examples. We're only going to read one of them because they all do kind of the same thing. Consider three examples of just such contemporary moral debate framed in terms of characteristic and well-known rival moral arguments. 1A, a just war is one in which the good to be achieved outweighs the evils involved in waging the war in which a clear distinction can be made between combatants whose lives are at stake and innocent non-combatants. But in a modern war calculation of future escalation is never reliable and no practically applicable distinction between combatants and non-combatants can be made. Therefore no modern war can be a just war. And we all now ought to be pacifists. That's one, a one B if you wish for peace, prepare for war. The only way to achieve peace is to deter potential aggressors. Therefore, you must build up your armaments and make it clear that you are going to war on any that going to war on any particular scale is not necessarily ruled out by your policies. An inescapable part of making this clear is being prepared both to fight limited wars and to go not only to but beyond the nuclear brink of certain types of occasions. Otherwise, you will not avoid war. Otherwise, yeah, otherwise, otherwise, if you don't if you're not willing to go to the nuclear brink, you will not avoid war and you will be defeated. Okay. One C wars between the great powers are purely destructive, but wars waged to liberate oppressed groups, especially in the third world are a necessary and therefore justified means for destroying the exploitative domination, which stands between mankind and happiness. Okay. So those are three different perspectives on war. If we got those three people in a room together and they, and they talked at each other, would there be agreement? Would they come to some form of consensus? depends on how long they're there and how humble they are i'd <laughs> that say really? i'd say okay Graham, just, just having an opinion doesn't mean that you're firmly entrenched in it okay i think that that's fair that so if any of those three perspectives are open to changing their mind they could change their mind like that's a and the other two point. and provided the other two can articulate themselves clearly and yes. in a way that isn't offensive and i mean there's there's a lot of prerequisites there yeah. but we we three experience in the in the rhetoric discussion room discussions where we have opinions and then change they, get, they get changed. Yeah, like totally. mine get changed, your guys's get changed. Let happens. me let me go for McIntyre's answer. Um, his is a little more negative. If by a little, I mean he he says no. Okay, it is easy to see the different conceptually incommensurable premises of the rival arguments deployed in these debates have a wide variety of historical origins. The concept of justice in the first argument, so the the um, be a pacifist has its roots in Aristotle's accounts of the virtue. The second argument's genealogy runs through Bismarck and Clausewitz to Machiavelli. The concept of liberation in the third argument has shallow roots in Marx. And then he goes through the different ones. What, what McIntyre is attempting to do and what will be the, the topic of future episodes is that there are historical lines that lead to certain arguments today and that those trains of argument have a really hard time talking to each other because the vocabulary of each lane is, is totally different. So like the concept of just the, it, the question is what is a just war? Those three lines of argument would disagree on what the word just itself means. And that's why I say they got to be in the room for a long time to have that discussion. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It, you, you're, it's not going to be a 10 minute discussion where you convince someone to wage wars when they've been a pacifist all their lives. Right? No, this is great. So, but I think this is then, this is the problem is that we argue the modern outpourings of these views and we don't argue like the history of the views like we only look and say war is either good or bad ignoring 
all of the conversation that comes before from our um, like philosophical grandfathers. Yeah, that's that's why when I mean, I talk to my leadership boys all the time about some of their opinions on all sorts of political things. And I'm and they, they want to argue at in the trees. I mean, sorry, well, in, the, in the leaves, right. like way up at the top. And I'm, right. I'm like, there's, there's going to be no moving the other tree when you're not down near the roots. Right. Good. So instead of talking to them about, you know, taxes, mm-hmm. like you should be talking about, you know, what, what rights are given to people inherently. And if there are rights given to people inherently, does that mean that we are different from the animals or are the animals the same? This is right. Great. So stuff like that. Yeah. Like, but so then if we take that way, how do we make those arguments? we, one way of doing that is we find the people who have made the most convincing forms of those arguments. Mm -hmm. And we say, they're probably smarter than I am on this point. They agree with me. I'm going to use their line of thinking in this. If, if you hold strongly to the third perspective, Marx is your better defender than you yourself. If you hold to the second Machiavelli will do it better than you will. But I, I would also apply then the word hero here of we, there, there are disagreements between our, intellectual forefathers or whatever, our intellectual ancestors. And so we need to pick the ones that we say, I agree with them and then like follow those ideas um, and understand them more than just the modern outflow, but understand the ideas that lead to those perspectives at the end. I got you, but maybe hero is not the right word, right? I don't have to laud someone to enjoy one idea they've had. I, I, mean, I think, I think hero comes with connotations of admiration and there mm-hmm. are certain men whose idea, like single idea on a specific point, I think is better put than I would, Sure, but that I don't admire. Sure. I would call it intellectual admiration, but I, I hear what you're saying. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I got you. But you're totally, you're right. It's not, you don't have to take the, in- well, it's maybe if, like if it's a, if it's a scoundrel who makes your argument, you might, that should go into it. Uh, not necessarily. That, really? That's, that's a fallacy, right? So, so saying Unless they're making that, a moral argument. Unless they're making a moral argument. Yeah. So it, saying that this argument, because it came from a certain person, is gene- the genetic fallacy. Uh-huh. So it means that just because... Okay, so for example, I like vanilla ice cream. Uh-huh. Hitler also liked vanilla ice cream. Uh-huh. So someone's like, oh, you think vanilla is the best. You know what? You know who else liked that? Yeah. Hitler, you should probably switch to chocolate, right? So just because he totally. liked something doesn't mean that... Or, the, the or vegetarian, right? Hitler was a vegetarian, therefore all vegetarians are Nazis. Like, they right, they right, should right, eat right, meat. So right. so like totally. having I, to be aware of that. I, I, yeah, I'm saying more if, some, if Aristotle says be a pacifist and then he like kills all of his opponents, I'd be like, you probably don't believe that. Yeah. Alistair's... Right. But well, even then, like that's... I think there we're getting to like a, I think there's a hypocritical fa- fallacy, right? To quote it's, it's pointing out the hypocrisy of mm-hmm. someone that espouses a certain idea to yeah. discredit the idea. The idea still might be good. Yeah. McIntyre's point where he says that there are, there are like philosophical underpinnings to, to the sort of the practical conclusions that somebody makes about an issue. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, and if you're sort of ignorant of those philosophical underpinnings, um, you're not going to be able to make headway on talking about the issue. Yes. And he's also lamenting the fact that if you have uh, an entire culture where the philosophical underpinnings are so diverse mm-hmm. and so and so individualized that you're going to be a culture that's never going to be able to make decisions that you all agree on or yes. that you're all sort of comfortable with, which so his, is in one point is fine because right. that's kind of like the basis of, of a modern republic is yeah. that's why you, you sort of get representatives to not make terrible decisions uh-huh. um but in the other sense it can be it, it can be incredibly fragmenting fragmenting because if you feel like your strongly held belief needs to be the one that wins then you set up a system where winner takes all well then mm-hmm. you're gonna have you're gonna have fracture so and that's kind of his point is yes. is that um um if we have people that have different 
different sort of mental models or different paradigms through which they're talking about virtue, they're talking about justice or war, um, you're not going to be able to come to these sorts of conclusions. Mm. And if I remember, it's been a long time since I've read After Virtue, but if I remember, I think his conclusion is basically like things would be easier if everybody was Aristotelian. <laughs> um, kind of. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, so that's Wouldn't why things be easier if everyone agreed on anything. Like it did exactly. literally yeah. picking exactly. philosopher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me uh, get so unless it's Nietzsche, and then everyone would just be depressed all the time. He talks mm-hmm. about Nietzsche. He there. Anyway, he's trying to thread a needle. There are parts of Nietzsche that he respects mm-hmm. and parts he doesn't. Same Although thing. I just want to state right now for the record that at the end of the last paragraph that's gotten so famous and mm-hmm. after virtue, where he's talking about the new kind of same, same the Benedict. new the new Benedict. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to put this out there, Internet. That's us. Okay. Classical <laughs> stuff you should know. The new Benedict on the scene. That's funny. I like your style. I that, that my one of my quotes comes from that last page, so maybe we'll get hit there. us up, Wasn't Roger. There a named Benedict. Hit maybe us we want up. to be more specific. <laughs> Saint Benedict. Saint. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Um, okay. So Not Benedict Arnold. I was going to say. Was wow. gonna say <laughs> you just said Benedict. You, yeah. you didn't specify. Sorry. He means a new. He's new he, he means like what happened in Rome was they all he's got a saint. they all got their heads turned around. No one was believing different philosophical uh, sort of uh, starting points, and right. then they couldn't. M- they couldn't rectify any ending points, and it all spun off into anarchy. And then Benedict took what was left and created monasteries and, and planted little seeds of virtue that sprouted later. That's, and, that's and his the reason we have point. Most of our like Greek, any like the reason we have Aristotle is because the monasteries like preserved preserved the, those writings. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll summarize, read, and then we'll probably we'll wrap up it anyway. We're like basically there. Okay, so what am I trying to say? Okay, so moral education. There is a, a type of moral education where you just tell people, do this, do that, which is not necessarily great. Moral education can be very effective when it is caught, when by a student being around a teacher, they see the way the teacher acts, they want to be like that teacher, they mimic. Mm-hmm. So, point one, point two. We can look to history to find other heroes. We don't only need to have the people around us. Like, it is okay to look to ancient Greece and find heroes, but there are gaps and things missing in those heroes. This is just, it's probably a very simple third point. We should have modern day heroes too, that we should have people who are alive today who can actually talk with or are like alive in 2019, pick your context, either city, state, whatever. Well, this if is like, then you should put a ring No, this. So this, no, this is why, so Josh Gibbs wrote an article where he was talking, maybe jokingly about like college. And he was saying, instead of sending your kids off to, and I kind of, I like the idea, instead of sending your kids off to a four-year college where they're going to sort of live this hedonistic uh, lifestyle, or or at least in that environment with professors who, are, who don't really care about the undergrads, they just want their tenure, and the undergrads don't really care, they just want to be credentialized so they can go off into, you know, jobs. He said, instead of doing that, if you're really concerned with, like, developing moral character, send your kid to live, like, find, think of the, like, the five best people that you know who live life right and then when you and then have your child go and live with them for a year for four you know one person for the next four years and then uh, live and then help and work and try to figure out some sort of way that they can install themselves into your life for a year and then that is the moral education I mean I think that's a great idea yeah so um, that sounds so, like a good place to land. I mean, that's uh, that's a good thought to. Well, Thomas, we are starting a farm. Yeah, so that is accurate. So, so we send your kids. Are we looking for interns? That's is that right. What's happening Come right on, now? send your. Yeah. yeah, if you don't want to send your kid to a wacky college, are you? Do we Just really kidding. want to finish the episode? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> listeners to no. send their children to work on your yes. farm. Yeah, that's where we want to yep. end. Yep. Well, yep. Yep. I mean, more than anything. Okay, let me. Farm's not there yet. I'll read this. We're working on it. We're building it. Some of you are going to like rage quit the podcast as I read this. So get excited. Hide your kids from the podcast. I don't like this. Okay. 
a central thesis. So, <laughs> uh, Alistair McIntyre's project is to say, okay, there are these different streams of thought. How can we get them to talk to each other? So the first thing I read to you was from page 10. This is on page 216 and he still mm-hmm. hasn't answered the question. So anyway, it's a great book, but there was a reason he had to write a few more after this. Okay. A central thesis then begins to emerge. Man is in his actions and practice as well as in his fictions, essentially a storytelling animal. He is not essentially, but becomes through his history, a teller of stories that aspire to truth. But the key question for men is not about their own authorship. I can only answer the question. What am I to do? If I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? We enter human society. That is with one or more imputed characters. Well, that was a weird way to say that (laughs) with one or more imputed characters roles into which we have been drafted and we have to learn what they are in order to be able to understand how others respond to us and how our responses to them are apt to be construed. It is through hearing stories about wicked stepmothers, lost children, good, but misguided Kings wolves that suckle twin boys, youngest sons who receive no inheritance, but no inheritance, but, but must make their own way in the world and eldest sons who waste their inheritance on riotous living and go into exile to live with the swine that children learn or mislearn both what a child and what a parent is, what the cast of characters may be in the drama into which they have been born and what the ways of the world are deprive children of stories and you leave them unscripted, anxious stutterers in their actions as in their words. Mm-hmm. So page 216. If you ever want to look that up. So what do we need? We need both the ancient stories, but we do also need the modern stories. We find ourselves in a modern context and we need people. We need heroes specific to where we are to set that example for us of who we are to be. So we need both. Mm -hmm. And that's the landed plane. Cool. Cool. Well, this has been classical stuff. You should know if you have questions or comments or your own further thoughts about ancient role models and modern role models, email us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. You can find us on Twitter at classicalstuff, C-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff. And I will like and retweet your things and maybe send sassy things back because it's the internet. Um, if you, we, you can find us online, all of our episodes at classicalstuff.net. And um, we thank you for listening. If you want to be that 100th commenter uh please do so maybe one day boys we need to like read out some of our comments because there are some there are some funny ones in there there's some good ones in there so maybe we will read out some comments every now and then there's one that made you guys bachelors right yeah there was one that was like oh i love their their podcast is really great uh but presumably they can do the the, their bachelorhood affords them the freedom to do this and i was like i beg your pardon i'm married and thomas is about to be a father accurate um anyway uh but yes so thank you for listening this is graham AJ and Thomas, three modern heroes. Mm, there it is. Uh, signing off. Bye. I never claimed that. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs>